This morning's scripture is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. It's good to gather together to sing your praise, to worship you with all of our hearts. We ask that you would be pleased with all that we do here this morning. We thank you for other churches in our community. And this morning, we pray for two of them, Lord. We thank you for Prosperity Presbyterian Church nearby and also Mecklenburg Community Church. And they are very different churches in many ways, and yet, Lord, they are both very faithful in proclaiming the good news of the gospel and in calling people to yourself. So we pray your hand of blessing to rest upon them. Uh, During this time of Lent, we know they, like us, are getting ready for Easter and Holy Week and all kinds of activity. And Father, I pray you would bless their work. May you use it to further your kingdom. May you use it to call people to yourself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we come to you now humbly asking that you would speak to us, open it to us, and change our hearts, and may you alone be glorified, and we ask this in your holy name, amen. You know, for thousands of years, Christians have confessed their faith together by using the Apostles' Creed. We didn't say it together this morning, but most of you know it pretty well, and you know that the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned within the Apostles' Creed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You will also, if you think about it, know there's only two human people, other than Jesus who was a human, but two other people mentioned the Apostles' Creed. One is the Virgin Mary, and we think about, well, of course, you know, that's so significant. And so we testify to the virgin birth and Mary's participation in God's plan. But the other person mentioned in the Apostles' Creed is who? Pontius Pilate. Now, 
under whom Jesus suffered. Why was Pilate included in this statement of Christian confession very early on, and now for thousands of years, Christians have repeated his name? Well, there's an easy answer in one sense, is that he was a public official overseeing everything. And so all that we read, just a moment, that Sarah Lynn read to us, Pilate's at the center of it all. So he's representing, but not just Rome, because what we see in Mark 15, Pilate is a public representative, but he's actually representing everyone in the story this morning. And that's why I titled the sermon, Who Killed Jesus? Because as you read these first 15 verses, that's what Mark's getting us to ponder. Who's responsible for Jesus' death? And as we go through this, know this, Mark fills these 15 verses with irony. It's everywhere. And what I'm going to do is I'll point out maybe about half of the instances of irony. And what he's doing is he's doing all of this intentionally too because he's trying to cause us to consider something together. So we'll go back through this again, but we'll start with verses 1 to 5 where Jesus stands accused and silent. Let me read that again. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So if you were with us last week, you know the Sanhedrin has stayed up all night long, not listening to Lionel Richie, but planning their work of knowing that if you want to get Jesus before Rome, you got to get there early because the Roman courts open up at daylight. And so they stay up all night long working their case up against Jesus, and it tells us very early in the morning, why are they getting there? They want to be first in line. Pilate is probably still having his breakfast when this enclave shows up outside of his residence. Now, Jesus has been convicted by the Sanhedrin of blasphemy. Here's the problem. Rome doesn't give a rip about blasphemy. Somebody's blaspheming your God, so what? And the problem to the Jews is they want Jesus dead. They don't have the legal right in their court to execute him. Only Rome could do that. So here's what they do. They have to take the indictment and change it into something that will get Pilate's attention. And so what they do is they secularize the term Messiah. And we've talked about what Messiah means. And so they take this religious term and secularize it to he's claiming to be king, Pilate. And so what they've done is they've taken a religious indictment, secularized it into a political indictment of treason, that Pilate, this guy, is claiming kingship. Now Pilate has to take notice of this. And that's the very first piece of irony you see in our whole passage this morning. 
because it's the Jews have just condemned Jesus for failing to be the Messiah. That's their whole point. That's why he's charged with blasphemy. You claim to be Messiah. Clearly you're not. You're a false Messiah blaspheming. But now they want Rome to condemn him for being the Messiah. You see how ironic this is? You're not Jesus. You're guilty of blasphemy. Hey, Pilate, he's guilty of claiming to be Messiah, son of God, king of the Jews. Now, Pilate is the governor who ruled this region from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. And if you've been in church a long time, you may have heard sermons about Pilate that actually make him a sympathetic character, you know, a, a victim of fate in different ways. And so it's meant to engender good feelings for Pilate. I would say get rid of all of that. Pilate is not a good guy. He is a very bad guy. Pilate is nasty. He is cruel. He's ruthless. He's stubborn. He was hated by the Jews for very good reason because he was regularly provoking them. And his provocations got so bad at different points that three times already there have been uprisings leading to bloodshed where people on both sides are killed. And then shortly before this trial, a fourth one happened. So Pilate, he is no friend of the Jews. He's constantly antagonizing them. And a couple of things he's done that's really ticked them off. Uh, if you're in Jerusalem, Pilate built an aqueduct to bring fresh water into the city. That's a good thing, right? The Jews were like, no way, because how he paid for that aqueduct is he stole from the temple treasury the offerings given by the Jews. He raided it, took all the money, and used it to pay for his aqueduct, not engendering goodwill and sympathy among the Jews. He also, at one time, had the Roman legion march through Jerusalem carrying the legion's banners. And if you know history, these things aren't just banners proclaiming the glory of Rome. These are religious banners of worship. And so what happened is Pilate said, come through here, and they're carrying their standards. All the people are supposed to be worshiping. Well, if you're a Jew, there's only one God, and you are now proclaiming false worship and everyone to idolatry by just carrying these standards through Jerusalem. And I'll give you a third example. Jesus even talks about, if you look at Luke 13, I encourage you to look at it later, just the first five verses there. He talks about a time when the Galilean pilgrims had come into Jerusalem, probably for one of the feasts. We don't know exactly which one because there's not enough details given. But the Galilean pilgrims come in having a feast. Pilate gets ticked for some reason. And as the Galileans are in the temple and the priests are sacrificing the lambs, Pilate has the soldiers come in, slaughter the Galileans, so that Jesus says the blood of the lambs flowed with the blood of the Galileans through the temple. This is Pilate. He is not a sympathetic character. He's a very cruel leader. And his attempt in our text this morning to let Jesus go most likely came from his desire to frustrate the Sanhedrin. He wants to remind them who's in control here. 
And what better way to do so when he realizes, hey, this should be a slam dunk. I've got an innocent guy. They want him dead. They're trumping up all these charges. I'll stick it to them. Now, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus replies with this very enigmatic statement. It's hard for the translators to get it. And I don't know exactly what it should be because it's... Jesus, the NIV says it this way, you have said so. Some good translators say it should be translated, yes, whatever. Now, I know if you've got teenagers, Jesus is not being a sullen teenager. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, whatever. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. It's, he's affirming it, but not fully the way Pilate means it. And so he gives a yes, but it's a very guarded yes. If I were translating it, and Greek scholar that I am, um, I would do it this way. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, but in a different way. Jesus is affirming, yes, I am I am, because he is king of the Jews. And there's some irony all in this, too. He is king of the Jews, but not in the way that the Sanhedrin and Pilate is talking about it here. Jesus answers once, and then he remains silent the rest of the time. What's he doing? Pilate's amazed by this. He doesn't understand. He, he, He recognizes, clearly you're innocent, Why won't you defend yourself? He sees right through what the Sanhedrin's doing. Jesus is silent, and I think it follows up what we saw several weeks ago as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not as I will, as you will. Your will be done. And here, Jesus is continuing to show full surrender to the Father's plan. And so he says, yes, and then keeps quiet, and he lets the events play out as he knows they will. Jesus could stop all of this at any moment. He intentionally doesn't because he knows the road before him is the road to the cross. Now, something in Jesus' reply and demeanor and the whole thing, Pilate sees there's a big discrepancy between the indictment and the reality. He could sense the Sanhedrin's case is embarrassingly weak, and that this solemn rabbi standing before him, this is no revolutionary. And that's why we see in verses 6 and 7, as I'll say it here, one man's murderer is another man's freedom fighter. Mark writes, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. Now, many people, when you think of Barabbas, you think of a guy in rags, some kind of a worthless thief, right? That's how a lot of the movies even portray him. He's some low-life thief. That's not a good picture, I believe. I think we need to understand who Barabbas is And Mark actually, in very short form, tells us some very important things about Barabbas. And here's how I want you to think about him. 
Barabbas is a former Pharisee who is now a freedom fighter. He is a guy who was a Pharisee, possibly part of the Sanhedrin temple complex, who has now become a local hero. Now, why can I say that? For several things that Mark does. One is Barabbas' name. The name Barabbas, if you know your Hebrew, is Bar-Abba. Bar means son of, and what does Abba mean? Father, right. Son of the Father. This was a regular name Pharisees took upon themselves. So he had a first name. It'd be like Kevin, if he were a Pharisee, could claim the name Kevin Barabbas. Kevin, son of the Father. Many Pharisees did this, and it also was a way to declare who they were. They were one of the conservative good guys in the community. I'll come back to his name in a moment. But also, the word that Mark uses here, insurrectionist, it's a term for a religious guerrilla fighter. Luke uses another term, which means the same thing, but it also connotes thief, and that's why, where we get it. And, and so when you think of Barabbas, think of him as a Pharisee combined with Robin Hood. That is how the people in Jerusalem would have viewed him. Because he was a thief, but to the local crowd in Jerusalem, he was a good thief like Robin Hood. What has happened to this guy, most likely, is he has been so frustrated by what is happening in Jerusalem under Roman occupation, he snaps and turns to violence. He murdered people, and he stole from Romans to fund the insurrectionist cause. He wasn't the only one. We have accounts of Pharisees who got so frustrated with what's happening, I can't take it anymore, and I've got to act. And so they turn into this local freedom fighter kind of character. That's Barabbas, not the common petty thief, a highly respected Pharisee who became a Robin Hood character. And yes, he killed some people, but you know who those people were? The lousy Romans. They deserved it anyway. The people in Jerusalem love this guy. It's kind of like if, you know, in our own Revolutionary War, if you know the story of Ethan Allen, we celebrate Ethan Allen. It's not just a furniture company. We celebrate Ethan Allen as a patriotic hero. You know what he was to the British? A murderer. So one man's murderer is another man's freedom fighter. Barabbas has killed... But to the people in Jerusalem, Rome, he's a murderer. Jerusalemites, he's a freedom fighter. He's a patriot. And that also, I told you about Barabbas' name, meaning son of the father. Here's where it gets even more ironic. Anybody know what his first name was? Huh? Jesus. Yes. Matthew tells us that Barabbas' first name is Jesus. Here's the irony. We have two people standing in front of Pilate, Jesus, Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father, the insurrectionist, and we also have Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph, but who is the true son of the father. The irony is rich here. 
Two men named Jesus, one Jesus, son of the Father, the other Jesus, son of Joseph, true son of the Father. And that leads us into what Mark does in the last part of this account, which is this, which son of the Father is going to be chosen here? The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest the chief priest had handed him over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. What is happening here? Pilate is trying to ruin the Sanhedrin's plans by releasing Jesus, normal Jesus, not Barabbas, releasing Jesus, pretending to serve the good of the people. He thinks this is a win-win for me. Jesus has got to be liked by these people, so I can frustrate the Sanhedrin who really annoy the heck out of me, and I can release somebody who really shouldn't be here in the first place. The problem was the Sanhedrin anticipated this. And so they actually, as they went there very early in the morning, they actually probably got the whole crowd together. And they incited that crowd to call out Barabbas' name when the tradition comes up. And then shout for Jesus' crucifixion. Barabbas, this would be easy for the crowd in Jerusalem because, as I've already said, he's got political friends, he's got religious connections, it's really easy to float his name. And, and this is where sometimes we're going to pause just here for a second because sometimes people wonder this. How did the crowd turn on Jesus so badly? Because, you know, not that long ago was the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday as we celebrate it, where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and people are shouting, Hosanna, glory to God, laying down their palm fronds in front of him as he rides in on a donkey. How do you go from that to a crowd standing outside of Pilate's chamber shouting, crucify him? Are they really that fickle? No. It's two crowds. Here's what I mean. The crowd walking in with Jesus on Palm Sunday singing, Hosanna, are Galilean pilgrims. Where was most of Jesus' ministry? In Galilee and the surrounding areas. He, this is His people. These are the people who've seen His miracles and heard His teachings so much, and they're shouting, Hosanna. The people gathered this morning, this is the Sanhedrin's crowd. The Jerusalem citizens, and I tell you what, just like the temple leaders didn't like Jesus talking about destroying the temple, the normal people in Jerusalem didn't like it anymore either. And so you have two separate crowds, one praising Jesus as he comes in, the other shouting for his execution. And what you see happening here, the Jerusalem citizens were not keen on this Jesus who talks about the temple going away and who talks about loving your enemies. We, we don't want that kind of Messiah. We want a Messiah more like Barabbas, a man of action, a man who's willing to get a little dirty and put Rome in its place. 
You see, they didn't want the true son of the Father. They wanted a different Jesus, a Jesus who you can live with, a Jesus who's not going to make you feel guilty when you blow it and you sin, not a meek, humble Jesus. You know, for two th- side point you can think about on your own, for 2,000 years the world has clamored for a different Jesus than the one we have. I, I'll, I'll take Jesus as long as He doesn't make me feel bad. I'll take Jesus as long as He doesn't tell me I have to live any differently. I'll take Jesus if, if everything is good and roses and gives me hope, but don't, don't, don't tell me that there's something wrong with me. I don't want that kind of Jesus. And, and once again, we have a piece of irony here, and it's this. Caiaphas and group wanted Jesus killed. What's the primary accusation against him? In your, when you read all the Gospels, he's talking against the temple and being a false messiah. So they, didn't, they wanted to kill him because they believed Jesus was undermining the temple, but by supporting Barabbas and the zealots, they end up contributing to a program of violence that 40 years later led to the destruction of not only the temple, but Jerusalem itself. Boy, there's irony in this. And something else for you to think about on your own, because this is what they're doing. When we cast aside God's rules because they seem to get in the way of what needs doing, we rarely foresee the consequences of what we're really choosing. You know what? If I, if I just ignore what God's telling me here, I can make this happen a whole lot faster. Often you don't know what you're opening up. They couldn't foresee how by choosing Barabbas, the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, in the end, it wasn't the insistence of the Sanhedrin leaders which forced Pilate's hand. It was his desire to please the crowd. You can think of Pilate also as a leader who sticks his finger in the wind to see which way it's blowing and makes decisions based on that. He released Barabbas, has Jesus flogged and handed over for crucifixion. And Mark says it, he just says it very matter-of-factly. You realize how bad flogging was? This is a whip of nine cords, long cords, that has bone and nails, little things stuck in it, and on the end, these round metal balls with hooks. So what you would do is you would place somebody over a tree stump or lean them over a half little quarter pillar, put their back down, and then the soldier would take it, lash him, that would wrap around the back, get to the rib cage, those little balls and hooks would stick, and then they'd just pull. And it rips and flays the flesh, severing it, pulling muscle out. By the end of a flogging, what you see is cartilage and bone and a bloody mess. It was, it was horrendous. The Romans, they knew how to take punishment to the extreme. Here was the goal. Make somebody suffer as much as possible, but keep them just barely alive so they can then get the final thing, which is the crucifixion. It was a horrible thing. If, if we saw a flogged person, I bet most of us would pass out. Mark just says... Now, why in the world does he just say Jesus is flogged and then handed over to be crucified? Because Mark is trying to draw our attention to something bigger. And here's, I'm going to lump it all together here at the end. 
There's a final piece of irony, and it's probably one of the most important ones in the whole passage. Barabbas is actually guilty of the crime for which Jesus is accused of. He truly is an insurrectionist, deserving flogging and death by the Romans. He had no hope of acquittal. He knew what was coming. He had probably given himself over. I know what lies in my future. And he had to be utterly shocked to hear that a man took his place And how doubly shocking that it wasn't just a man, it's another Jesus. Jesus takes the place of Jesus Barabbas. And Jesus Barabbas sees the bright sunlight and is set free. His world is opened up to him again. And what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus died for Barabbas. It's an example of the entire work of Jesus. But he didn't limit it to Jesus dying for Barabbas. He died in the place of the condemned. Not just for one man, but for all who stand condemned before God because of sin and who cannot save themselves. You see, Mark's why he's focusing in the way he is, as I said at the beginning, he wants us to think about killing Jesus and who caused Jesus' death. And what you get from this and the account right before and the account right after is there's no Jew versus Gentile in this. Don't think that. He's not blaming the Romans at the expense, you know, setting the Jews free. And he's not blaming the Jews and setting the Romans free. Mark is saying everyone's guilty everyone's involved. Even on the outside of the text today, the disciples have denied him, Peter deserted him, Peter's denied him, Judas has betrayed him. The religious leaders, their sin of pride and fear of losing power, they've promoted his death, causing the crowd to blindly follow them, shouting for his death. Pilate is driven by his sin of fear, And he tries to blame everyone else. Remember, he washes his hands and says, this is on you. It's not my fault. And the soldiers torture him and crucify him. Everyone who participated in Jesus' death did so for different reasons, but they had something in common, all of them. They all needed a Savior. In reality, everyone's at fault. And if I think if we, asked, if we could get Mark here today and said, Mark, who killed Jesus? His first answer would be this. I caused his death. I caused his death. I wasn't physically there. Remember, Mark was one of the ones who had fled, deserted. But I caused his death. Because he understood Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just some symbolic act. He died for sinners. And what Mark is doing beautifully in this passage is showing Everyone stands in need of a Savior because everyone is culpable because of their sin. My friends, here's the bad news for you. You're sinners in need of a Savior. We don't do just little mistakes. They're grievous things against a holy God, the smallest of which demands eternal punishment and separation. You're far worse than you think you are. 
And I'm not saying this as preacher on high up here. I'm just like you. Saturdays, normally, you know what I do? Eight to ten hours working on a sermon. That's just kind of finishing the work of a week's worth of study. I finished last night. We have dinner. You know how I ended my night? I screamed at one of my daughters. It's a great way to get ready for a message. I yelled at her. I lost it. I got angry, and I yelled, and I embarrassed her. And then because of the stupid daylight savings, she had gone to bed, and I couldn't apologize to her because she was asleep, and I wasn't, I wasn't at all going to wake her up in the morning because I get here somewhat early, so I ended up writing a note. And as I thought about it, I just reminded myself, just remembered, your dad's a pretty bad sinner who needs a Savior. We all are. We all need Jesus far more than we ever want to admit. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took my stupid anger He took every bad thought, every coarse word, every horrendous action of all of us who trust in him, and he paid for it. And in him, it's all gone. That's what Mark wants us to know. Who caused Jesus' death? I did, and you did, and they did. Just as Jesus took Barabbas' place that day, he took your place and my place on the cross. Isaiah 53 says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. I'll end with this. Uh, Henry Nouwen is an author, and I I love a lot of what Henry Nouwen writes. In one of his books, he tells the story about a uh, doctor in Paraguay, and it was during a time where there was a military regime there, and human rights abuses were just out, I mean, they're just off the charts in different ways. And so this doctor couldn't stand it, and so he spoke out against the military regime, and here's what the regime did. They took the doctor's teenage son and threw him in prison. And then they tortured him and killed him and said, come pick up your son. The townspeople, they all knew what happened, and they're they're going nuts. And they want to turn this into a protest march, walking through the streets of the city, calling out what the military has done and its injustice and its abuse. They wanted to turn the funeral into this kind of a protest. The father said, we can do that, but I've got a different idea. And so what the father did was this. They had a service for the son, and rather than a coffin, they had the son lying on the mattress in which they picked him up from the prison. His body's lacerated, beaten and bruised. There were cigarette burns all over his body and electrical shock places. He had been brutalized. And the townspeople quietly passed by the reality I think in one sense it was the strongest protest imaginable because what it did 
was put in justice on grotesque display. And what you see in Mark's passage this morning, there is grotesque injustice. And there's only one innocent person, and everything lands on him. You see, the cross is very much like the mattress that that son was lying on. Because what Nowen talks about was on the cross that held Jesus' body, naked and marked with scars, it exposed all the violence and injustice of this world, our own included. You see, the cross reveals what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. We have a world of gross unfairness, and we're part of that. And yet, friends, we have a God of sacrificial love. And your God loves you more than you can know. So much that He went to the cross for you. May you know the hope that sets us free. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for Your sacrifice. We thank You that in You, all the promises of God to us now are yes. And that this morning, Lord, even if we sinned grotesquely this morning, in You, there is forgiveness and there's perfect grace. And in You, we are holy. We thank You, Lord, that it's not our faithfulness that holds us to You, but it's Your faithfulness, it's Your work, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Your Father. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your amazing love. Help us to love You more. Lord, as we give You our tithes and our offerings, we give You our lives. And as we sing this old hymn, may our hearts well up with love for you, the one who loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.